Good morning, Trinity Church. We are in our second week this week of our Advent series, Salvation Songs of the Gospel of Luke. I wanted to remind all of you again that we are reading together uh, from this Advent booklet, an Advent reading booklet uh, written by one of our own members. And uh, I handed these out last week, but because of Thanksgiving, it being the week after Thanksgiving, and all the sickness, raise your hand if you've been sick in the last couple of weeks. Everybody's hand goes up. So because of sickness and because of uh, holiday, many of you did not get this booklet last week. Note for next year, get these out a little bit earlier than the week that we're starting. So I have these for you, these booklets for you after the service. If you'd see me before you leave, a booklet, booklet for your family so you can read along with our sermons uh, throughout the week. There are three readings that go along with our sermons uh, throughout the week, and hopefully those have been an encouragement to you. Uh, we read all three of those as a family this last week, and I'll tell you, the, the person who wrote these readings did a great job, did a great job of encouraging uh, from God's Word. Uh, well, we are in our Advent series, and so I'd like to draw your attention to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, where we continue with the songs of salvation in Luke Luke chapter 1, I'm going to be looking at Zechariah's Benedictus, Zechariah's song of praise and prophecy regarding his son in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Would you stand with me? Join me in standing for the reading of God's word. I'll read verse 67 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you again praying, asking 
for you to do a work in our hearts this morning from your word. Convict us. Show us where our trust lies. Show us what we believe in. Correct us this morning from your word that we would, as has already been prayed, that we would come back to that path that you have set us on, the path of peace, that we would be emboldened in our witness even this morning and in our role to warn, to proclaim the coming judgment and to proclaim salvation to those around us who still sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And I pray that you would encourage us this morning, encourage us as we forget often that we indeed have been freed from sin. The light has come and we have seen your salvation. And I pray that you would Encourage us with that reminder this morning. Cause us to be renewed in our faith as we follow Jesus on our way to the celestial city. We pray all of this for your glory and your name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, this song this morning is Zechariah's Benedictus, his song, his prayer of praise. You remember Zechariah, don't you? I was thinking about this this last week as I was meditating on the passage. Many of us are intimately familiar with this story, but some of us aren't. We have to remember that we have young people and we have people that are young in the faith. And we have people who have been believers for a while but just aren't that familiar with their Bibles. And so we want to make sure we remember who Zechariah is. Zechariah, if you are familiar with the story, you know this, but Zechariah was a very old priest with a very old wife. And they had never been blessed with a child Yet, Zechariah and his wife were known for their faithfulness. In fact, the text says earlier in chapter 1 that Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and yet they had no child. They prayed for a child. Months turned into years, turned into decades. They prayed and were never given a child. And this doesn't add up. You see, an Israelite who is faithful to God should expect God to be faithful to his part of his promises. If we are faithful to God, God will be faithful to us. 
And yet here you have two faithful Israelites who did not experience God's blessing in childbirth. Barrenness in the Old Testament communicates divine displeasure. God's judgment upon people. Surely, Zechariah and Elizabeth should not expect God's displeasure for their faithfulness. This barrenness was grounds for shame, mocking, ridicule, as it was, remember, we saw last week for Hannah in the Old Testament. Remember, we looked at Hannah's prayer briefly. She was mocked and scorned by her husband's other wife. Remember, Elkanah had two wives. She was barren and the other wife was fruitful, had children for her husband. And so that wife would mock and scorn Hannah for her barrenness and for God's displeasure, apparently, with her. Can you imagine, can you imagine, just try to imagine, and some of you, can imagine it all too well. What it was like for Zechariah and Elizabeth, a life faithfully devoted to God, a life trusting in God, and yet God had seemingly forgot them. The questions, the speculation, the inward doubts, struggles, the quiet pain and suffering that they experienced, chronic, ongoing, never-ending, emotional and spiritual struggle for this aged couple. But they maintained their testimony. They maintained their belief and trust in God. They were righteous. And notice it says not before men they were righteous, although that is true. They were righteous before God. God saw their hearts and God knew that they continued to trust in him. They walked blamelessly in all his commandments this, as a matter of passing by, we could note here that this couple serves as an example for us that our circumstance, whatever it is, our circumstance, whatever it may be, does not and should not keep us from walking righteously before God. Our circumstance, whatever it is, whatever it may be, should not keep us from walking in a way to please the Lord, to trust in Him. Here I think Zechariah and Elizabeth serve as a picture of faithful Israel, much like Mary last week and her humble estate serves as a type for Israel. Zechariah and Elizabeth here serve as a picture of faithful Israel. 
Now, in Zechariah's day, not many make up this number. Not many are faithful in Israel in Zechariah's day. But just as Zechariah and Elizabeth have lived their long lives without seeing God's blessing, and still they remain faithful, still they remain trusting, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth have lived their long lives without seeing God's blessing, So had Israel been a long time without receiving God's covenant promises. Just as their father, Abraham and Sarah, they also lived a long life without seeing God's promise come to fruition. You remember that story of Abraham and Sarah? They were promised son. And yet Abraham got older and older and older and the the promised son still hadn't come. What we see here is a pattern throughout the entire Bible. A pattern that shows us that long seasons of unanswered expectations Long seasons of waiting upon God to deliver upon his promises. Long seasons of waiting, hopeful waiting. Long seasons of seemingly unanswered prayers spent waiting for God to deliver upon his promises. These long seasons are not abnormal for God's people. These long seasons are in fact what God plans for his people. Why are we surprised at the long seasons of waiting? We, we don't like waiting, do we? But I've had so many conversations with so many of you and there are, there are situations and circumstances that you have been brought to by the kind providence of God where you are waiting for God chronic issues of pain and suffering and doubt. Maybe a grown child who is walking away from the Lord. Maybe private or relational suffering and pain that you're experiencing. What we find is that in these long seasons that God has brought us to, where we are waiting for God, We are in line with all of God's people. This is what God has given us. Because it is in the long seasons of waiting where we see our faith. This is where we see what we believe in, what we're truly trusting in. But we don't like waiting. We would rather have immediate answer to our needs. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting. And they have waited so long that now it seems utterly hopeless. But just as God gave Abraham and Sarah a child, the promised child that he had promised them in their old age, Zechariah and Elizabeth now experience a visitation from God. 
Zechariah is a priest. As I said, a very old priest. One of 18,000 priests who would have been on a calendar of service for the temple. Once in a lifetime, you were given possibly an opportunity to be selected as the priest to go in and offer incense in the temple. And that honored day had come upon Zechariah. Zechariah was chosen by lot to bring incense into the temple and burn incense there in the temple. And as Zechariah steps in the temple to carry out this honored duty, he is met there in the temple by a messenger from God, a messenger named Gabriel. And what is this messenger say? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You and your wife will bear a son. His name will be John, and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Is it possible? Is it possible in my old age I could have joy and gladness? Is it possible that after all these years, God could bring joy and gladness to our home? Yes, it's possible, Zechariah. It's happening. But, but as you and I do, Zechariah wavers in his faith. Here, God is answering Zechariah's prayer. He is also answering the prayers of faithful Israel. And what was faithful Israel praying for at this time? They were praying prayers shaped out of God's promise to their fathers. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. Prayers shaped out of what the prophets had foretold. The prophets, the long line of prophets that had prophesied of the coming salvation for Israel, for God's people concluding with the prophecy of Malachi. 400 plus years before this moment in the temple with Zechariah, over 400 years before this moment, God had concluded his message through the prophets in the message of Malachi. And these prophets and the promises through the prophets, had shaped Israel's prayers for salvation. That prophet Malachi had prophesied that one day, the day of the Lord would arrive, but before the day of the Lord arrived, God would send a prophet, a prophet in the vein of Elijah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, who would prepare the way for the Lord And this, this is what this messenger from God tells Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered, 
and so have the prayers of Israel. But again, Zechariah wavers. Much like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who laughed at the pronouncement of her bearing a child in her old, old age. Just like Sarah, Zechariah says, This is impossible. Don't you know how old I am? This can't happen. Israel, too, had surely given up hope that God would carry out his promise. But because Zechariah doubts God's direct revelation to him, he was silenced. He was silenced. He was told that he would not be able to speak until the day his son is delivered. Now, this impossible thing teaches us another lesson very quickly as we move past. That God does his work. God does his greatest work through the unlikely, like we saw with Mary. He chooses the unlikely, the one that you would not choose. He chooses the unlikely, When the hope seems lost, gone, and when the odds are impossible, this is when God works. He chooses the unlikely, the least likely. At the moment where hope seems lost, when the odds seem impossible, this is when God visits. This is what we see with Zechariah. And why? Why does God do his work in these circumstances? Because God wants to leave no doubt that he alone receives the glory for the salvation. Isn't this how God has always saved his people? Isn't this how God has always acted? Isn't this the moment where God has always visited You see, we have this tendency to look around in our world and in our life and bemoan our circumstance and situation. But don't you see, the darker that it gets, the darker it seems, all that is is preparation for God to visit. This should fuel our expectation God has not forgotten his people. God has not lost his ability to see our circumstance. And all of this, the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the condition of national Israel at this time, all of this serves as the context sitting behind our text this morning. Our text here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 79. After nine months of silence, after nine months of not being able to speak, of silent waiting, the sun 
is born. The son promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth is born. And they name him John, just as they were commanded. And it is then, at eight days old, when John is being circumcised, it is then that Zechariah's tongue is unloosed, is freed, and we get to hear Zechariah's spirit-filled mouth. What does Zechariah say after nine months of silence? What does Zechariah say after not being able to say anything for nine months? This is what we get to read here in verse 67 through 79. We see that Zechariah's song of praise has two parts. In verse 68 through 75, we see Zechariah give praise to God for his salvation. And then in verse 76 through 79, Zechariah gives a prophecy for his son and his son's role in God's coming salvation. At the, at the center of both of these halves, the praise and the prophecy, at the center of both of these halves is the concept of visitation. God has visited his people. And this is why Zechariah gives praise to the Lord because he has visited his people. Last week, Mary's Magnificat, you could refer to Mary's Magnificat as the song of the great reversal where the least likely are raised up and saved. And those who find life and salvation in themselves and in this world, they are brought down. The least likely are raised up and the exalted are brought down. The song of the great reversal, you could call this song the song of the great visitation. Because this is what Zechariah speaks of, the visit of God upon his people. When God visits, you've got to know that when God visits, nothing remains the same. Either he visits to bring judgment upon people, or he visits to bring salvation. And most often, he accomplishes both at the same time. When God visits, his people are rescued, are saved. They experience God's promises of salvation when God visits. And at the same time, when God visits, his opponents are defeated. And so is his visitation. When God visits, it is the fulfillment of the hopes of all who are faithful. And when God visits, it is the dread of all, all of those who oppose him. God's visitation brings salvation. 
to his people and destruction to his enemies. Isn't, isn't this really a central theme to our Advent season? Isn't that what we're doing through our Advent season is reminding ourselves of his coming? Not just his coming past tense, but his coming, his visitation, future. And when God comes, he will bring salvation for his people. And in that coming, he will bring destruction for those who remain proud, remain arrogant, who remain self-assured that they will stand against God. No, friend. When God visits, it will be salvation for those who trust in Him. And it will be the end of those who oppose Him. Do not remain stubborn in your hatred or unbelief. This visitation is what gives Zechariah praise. God has seen us. This is what he's saying when he says that God has visited us. He says, God has seen us. God has heard us. And God is going to do something about it. Think, think the Exodus. Remember the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Where God's people were in darkness and in bondage and in captivity. Remember that story, kids? How God's people were in Egypt for over 400 years. But God saw them. God knew. And God acted. And in that day, God visited his people. He sent them a deliverer who brought them out of captivity, out of bondage. And in bringing them and saving them out of bondage, he dealt with their enemies and destroyed them, saved his people while bringing judgment upon his foes. God has seen us, Zechariah is saying. He's heard our prayers and he's done something about it. He has visited, verse number 68, he has visited and redeemed his people And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has delivered his people from their plight. He has brought them out of their situation, out of their hopeless state. And he has raised up for them a horn of salvation out of the house of his servant David. What does this mean, the horn of salvation? The term horn is an Old Testament term. Used most often in relationship to God, God's power, particularly in the Psalms, where it pictures the power and the authority of God bringing salvation for his people. God's power or God's horn, God's strength is lifted up. But it was also in Hannah's 
prayer. You remember that? We saw that last week. Maybe not. Let me read it for you. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Listen to Hannah's prayer again. At the very end, here's what she says. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah in her prayer concludes with this language in reference to the anointed of Yahweh, the king, the Messiah. What a prayer from Hannah. A prayer of faith, understanding that God was moving to save his people. Do we still pray that way? Do we still pray for God to do as he promised? Or are most of our prayers self-focused? Oh, it's, it's not wrong to pray for yourself. That, in fact, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were praying for a child. Hannah was praying for a child. These are good prayers to pray for. But do you see that those prayers, those prayers sat inside a, a larger, a larger body of prayers, prayers for the salvation of God's people. And for God, for God to be acknowledged as God. For God's enemies to be destroyed. For God's king to be victorious. Are our prayers shaped as Israel's prayers were shaped? And as the faithful ones of Israel were shaped by God's word and by God's promises? Are our prayers shaped the same way? Zechariah praises God because he has visited his people and redeemed them through the exaltation of his powerful king. That's the main idea of Zechariah's praise and prophecy. Let me give it to you again. Zechariah praises God because God has visited his people And redeem them through the exaltation of his powerful king. God has done what he promised. And that's what he goes on to say. God has visited and redeemed his people through the exaltation of his powerful king, the one that he promised from the house of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, just as he said he would. Just as God had promised. God's word is trustworthy. God has followed through. God has kept his promise the same that he has spoke through the mouth of his holy servants, the prophets. God's visitation and redemption for his people through the power of his king 
fulfills the Old Testament promises that he had made to his people. Again, showing us that those who trust in God's word, even through the 400 years, that those who trust in God's word will not be disappointed. You you see, this is why many struggle in their faith. Because they believe that God's promises should be immediate to them. Or they are trusting in things that God has never promised. They're not actually shaping their prayers and what they expect and hope for out of God's word. And so they are disappointed with God. They either expect immediate answer or what they are expecting and hoping for. God has never promised them. But those who trust in God's word, even through long seasons, in the end, will not be disappointed. God's visitation in redeeming his people through the power of his king is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and it is also a fulfillment of the covenant promises given to Abraham. God is keeping his steadfast love with his people. Look at it there in verse 72. To show mercy promised to our fathers. This is the steadfast love promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. Not because God forgot. But God is carrying out what he promised, his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So, God's visitation to redeem his people through the power of his king, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It is also in keeping his steadfast love, the covenant promises, the covenant mercies that he promised to Israel. He is making good on the mercy that he promised to Abraham and to the fathers of Israel. And then this has two results. God's salvation, God's visitation, bringing redemption for his people through the power of his king is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It is a keeping of the the covenant promises made to Israel and to the fathers of Israel. But it brings two results. And here it is, the twofold result. First, it brings freedom from their enemies. Freedom from their enemies. In redemption, God brings his people victory over their enemies. Now, who are the enemies of Israel? A better question to ask is, who aren't the enemies of Israel? In fact, the entire world is set against the people of Israel. Why is that? Have you ever stopped and considered why throughout history have all the nations hated Israel? Oh, it's because of the God that they represent, people. It is because in their very name they testify to the reality of God. They are his covenant people. And the nations hate them. And throughout their history, they've been oppressed by those nations. I just mentioned the Exodus. Abraham and his descendants, 
they go down, his descendants go down into Egypt, and there they are oppressed and kept captive for over 400 years. God delivers them, he visits them, delivers them, redeems them. But then, it doesn't take long. They, they eventually go into the land, but there they are oppressed by the surrounding nations, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Philistines, on and on. We can mention all the Hittites, the Girgashites, all the Ites, the Midianites. All of these peoples oppress Israel. And God sends deliverers, judges to come and deliver them and deliver them and deliver them. Eventually, he delivers them through a king that he gives them, David. David gives victory over the mighty Goliath and over the Philistines, remember. But it's not long after David and through his family, through his own sin and through his family, Israel spirals down into again a a pattern of oppression and defeat at the hands of their enemies, leading eventually to the captivity of Assyria and Babylon take Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom, captive. God has always had to visit to bring deliverance for his people, Israel. Their oppression, their subjugation, their captivity and bondage at the hand of their enemies, this has been their entire existence. And Zechariah is saying, finally, he is raising the horn of his king. He's bringing salvation once and for all. Our enemies will be gone. He's bringing salvation to his people. No more enemies will be delivered from their hand. The enemies will be gone. And look at the goal. Look at the goal. Do you see it there in verse number 74? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is what he was hoping for. You see, this is what faithful Israel hoped for. It wasn't just freedom from their enemies. No, why? What was the goal of the freedom? What was the goal of the freedom when he brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus? It was so that they would go back to the very mountain where he commissioned Moses, that they would go back to that mountain and they would worship God there and they would be his people and he would be their God. And this is what faithful Israel hopes for. It isn't just freedom from enemies but it is to be able to serve him without fear. The enemy's now banished. The enemy's now vanquished. We can serve him the way we were meant to serve him, without fear, in holiness and righteousness, all our days, he says, all our days. For the rest of our days, we can serve him. And this was the hope of Zechariah. Freedom from the enemies so that they could serve him in holiness and righteousness all of their days. Did you know that that is the goal of redemption? That is the goal of redemption. The goal of redemption, 
yes, is to save us from our enemies. But the goal of redemption is that once freed from our enemies, we can serve God in holiness and righteousness. We can serve God without fear. This is what he has saved his people for. Now Zechariah in his prayer of praise turns to give a prophecy regarding his son. Look at it there in verse number 76. I hear this when I hear Zechariah say this. By the way, when you're reading, do you ever imagine how they're, how they're saying it? You should. There's a tone here. As I hear this, I, I hear a tenderness of a father tenderness of a father as he holds his child perhaps imagine that an old priest who had never seen God's blessing until that day and here he is holding his son and he looks at his son and he says and you child you child you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. John, he says, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He will indeed be that prophet spoken of by Malachi. He will be the last in the line, a long line of prophetic voices, the penultimate voice, the voice that will come before God himself visits. He will be the voice predicted in Isaiah 40, preparing a way in the wilderness for God to come. He will be the voice prophesied in Malachi 3 and 4, a voice turning the hearts of God's people back to God. And that's his role. His role is to prepare God's people for God's visitation. His message is one of repentance. Now this is, this is important. John came to preach repentance. Again, to turn the hearts of people back to God. This is what he says. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will go before the Lord. Before his visitation, you will go before him to prepare his ways, to make a people prepared, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Here's here's what's being said. John is going to go and tell the people that their salvation is coming, that the king is coming who will bring them salvation from their enemies so that they can go on and serve God the way they were meant to serve he is going to go and tell them that salvation is coming and his goal is to to warn them to tell them to turn their hearts back to God in preparation and here's the good news he has for them if you will turn to God he will forgive your sins and this is what his baptism signified his baptism, John the Baptist. This is, this is who Zechariah's son is, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. Repent and turn your hearts back to God from your sin 
and prepare yourself for God's visitation, for God's coming. And here, here was the message. He said, God will forgive you because of his tender mercy, because of his covenant-keeping love, Israel, God will forgive you. You do not deserve it. We do not deserve it, but God has not forgotten his covenant of mercy. God has not forgotten his steadfast love to his people. He will forgive you, and he will cleanse you, and he will come, and you will be his people, and he will save you from your enemies so that you can serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all your days. This is what John's message was. To give knowledge of salvation to his people that that God was visiting and that God still had a place for them if they would just turn from their sin, that God would bring the salvation. If God is to visit them and restore them, they must turn to God from their sin. But now, Zechariah makes an interesting statement. Zechariah, filled by the Spirit, talks with more specificity regarding the visitation of God. Look at it there in verse, at the end of verse 78, that couplet there. Because of the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. He calls the visitation of God the sunrise. This word for sunrise literally means that which springs up. It's used in the Old Testament in reference to the important messianic figure of a branch or a sprout. In places like Isaiah 11, 1, Jeremiah 23, where it's prophesied that there will be a branch spring up from the house of David, a righteous branch coming from David's house. It is also the word used to refer to the rising sun, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness in Malachi 4, and the rising star of Jacob in Numbers 24. This word, Anatole, speaks of the rising up of the branch from the house of David, the rising up of the son of righteousness, the star of Jacob. And this is the word Zechariah uses when he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise is a person The sunrise is a person, a person who embodies the visitation of God. Now, I find this remarkable that even in a a song that gives prophecy specifically about John, even in this prophecy specifically about John, the point has to be about Jesus, 
It's fitting, isn't it? Because that's what John existed to do, not to point to himself, but to point to the one who is greater than him. Even his father, in talking about John's role in bringing salvation, the knowledge of salvation to God's people, even Zechariah can't help but talking about the sunrise, the one who's coming. And what will the sunrise do when he visits from on high? Do you see it there? What will the sunrise do when he visits from on high? Two things. And these, these work in parallel with the two results of salvation we saw in the first half. Remember the results? To give victory over our enemies. To give victory over the enemies. And to grant to serve without fear before him all our days in holiness and righteousness. Look at the, look at the two things that the sunrise does when he comes. Verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What does the sunrise do when he comes? The salvation he brings is to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. John will proclaim salvation, but the sunrise will bring them into it. And praise God, the sunrise has dawned upon the earth, and he has brought salvation. There is a lot of debate that surrounds this passage on whether Zechariah is talking strictly politically about God's people, whether God's people will be delivered from their enemies, their foes, the nations that oppress them, or whether this is talking really more spiritually. I've got to tell you, I tire of that whole conversation because it is always both. (laughs) It's always both. Stop having the conversation. It's always both. This earth belongs to God. And he is making a people for himself. And in order to do that, he's got to take the earth back from the enemy that opposes him. Do you know who the enemy is? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself when you read these verses about enemies and God destroying our enemies? Have you ever tried to define who the enemies are? Do you know who the enemy is? It's not who we would like to make it a lot of times, right? Whoever's opposing us in the moment. No, do you know who the enemy is? The enemy of our souls. Did you know, friend, today, there is an enemy of your soul. There is one who hates God with every ounce of his being. And he has worked since the Garden of Eden. He has worked to destroy man, to rob God of his glory, to bring mankind to destruction. And you and I have that same enemy even today, the enemy of our souls. 
He is the enemy. Satan. Apollyon. I was reading with my children yesterday, the Pilgrim's Progress children's edition. Not as good as the original edition, but it's the children's edition. It's good. And we were reading the section in Christiana's story where Christiana walks the valley of humiliation in the valley of the shadow of death. I love those stories because you're reminded how real the battle for our souls is. But you know what this passage tells us? That the sunrise, Jesus came to deliver us from the one who is our enemy and to take us from the darkness and the shadow of death that we exist in under our sin. He's come to deliver us from that darkness and from that shadow of death. I love and can it be verse 4 of and can it be long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye talking about our savior thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke. The dungeon flamed in light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a wonderful verse, isn't it? Long my imprisoned spirit lay in the chains of sin in the dungeons of darkness. But the light came. And the light is a person. He came and dispelled the darkness and defeated the enemy and gave us freedom. I woke, the dungeon flame with light. And then he says, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You and I have a real enemy, and his name is Satan. And that enemy is real. He is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he fights a spiritual battle, he and his minions, daily to destroy. But Jesus has given the victory. Have you experienced the victory that Jesus has accomplished for his people? Have you experienced that victory over darkness and sin? I, I love, I went through the history of Israel just briefly right there. All of those, all of those oppressions and captivities and bondage, uh, we heard this in the, in the liturgy. What were all those oppressions and bondage? What led them into captivity every time? 
It was their sin. Yes, God will visit and destroy the enemies. But what was it that led them into captivity? It was their sin. What enemy truly needs to be destroyed? It is Satan and it is our sin. This is what needs to be destroyed. And this is what Jesus has done. He has destroyed the power of the devil. And he has destroyed sin by his death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you know who says that? Psalm 23. You know who says that? It's the king who's saying that. That's who's saying, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's the king. And he's saying to God, God, I know that you will go with me through death. You know what that picture is for us? That picture is the day that Jesus, he went to death for us. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death and God was with him and God remembered him and God rose him up and exalted him as the king. And now he can rescue. He can deliver from the enemy of the devil. He can deliver from the enemy that is sin and death. Why? Because he went through death for us. And he has delivered us. And we do not have to fear death any longer. This week, this week has been a week of death for several of us. Many have been impacted by the reality of death even this week. As Jeremy talked about Phil Campbell. Many of you know Brian Sayers. Brian Sayers' daughter Addie lost her baby just a couple of days before her due date. They've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death this week. Others have been impacted in their families and in their homes by death. Death is ever-present, isn't it? And yet, we have the victory. We have the victory over death. The sunrise has visited and he has given light to those who sit in darkness and under the shadow of death. He has rescued us. Why? So that we can serve him without fear in the way of peace and holiness and righteousness all our days. This is an odd thought. Maybe you've not considered this before. Did you know that you and I, we are getting to live what people like Zechariah, we are getting to live much of what they dreamed of. They dreamed of freedom. Freedom from Rome, yes, but also freedom from their sin so that they could serve God in holiness and righteousness. And do you know what you've been given? Freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the power of Satan. Freedom from the power of sin. 
Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from darkness. Why? So that you could serve Him in the way of peace, in holiness, in righteousness. You are living what many in Israel longed to see. Are you living in victory? Are you living in the victory that you've been given? Are you living with this goal of serving Him without fear and holiness and righteousness? I call you to repentance, to renew that commitment, to revel in the salvation that you've been given in Jesus. And then and finally, I encourage you during the season of Advent, as we look towards the coming of our Savior, that you would renew your faith. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The days are long. The seasons are hard. This is what God's people have been given. We are his people. And we've been given his salvation. And we hope and we pray and we long to see him face to face. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. He is bringing you, as we've said already a couple times, he's bringing you all the way home. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you that we have benefited. As Gentiles, we have benefited from your mercy, your mercy for your people. We are not worthy. We don't deserve this. We are weak in faith. We easily give up hope. We easily despair and are discouraged. We see death around us and we we collapse under its weight. I pray that you would remind us today, even now, remind us of the victory that you've given over Satan, the enemy of our souls. You have our soul and you will not relinquish it. And you've given us power over sin. And you've given us victory over death. Jesus, because you walked that path for us. And I pray for those who still sit in darkness, even here. They are stubborn and arrogant, self-assured, maybe in their intellectualism, in their pride. I pray that you would today even bring them to realization of their need for a Savior, that Jesus is the only answer for their darkness and their fear of death, and that you will work salvation for them, bring them to a place where they can serve you all of their days 
in holiness and righteousness. I pray that you would accomplish your work in our midst, even today through your word. We pray in your name. Amen.